Hi, everybody. This is Charlie Guarino. Welcome to another edition of Tech Talk SMB. I am so happy today to announce that I have as a guest one of the senior developers on our own team of Central Park Data Systems, Mr. Rainier Saju. And I have had the very good fortune to work with Rainier for many, many years. And he really is a senior developer. He he does some of our toughest assignments. So I'm so glad you're joining us here today. Rainier, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Charlie. Uh, it's a great honor for, for me to be here. And uh, I let the good times roll. <laughs> let the good times roll. Great. Okay, so the reason why I did ask you to join me today, Rainier, is because I know we do a lot of work with our clients using APIs. I talk about it all the time, we talk about modernization, and the term API economy comes up all the time. We really are in an API economy in that it seems that this is what the, the world is using today to communicate with each other, with trading partners and the like. What's been your experience with APIs and overall? I mean, this is part of, part of your everyday job? Yes, it's part of my everyday job. We have a lot of clients that are doing transactions every day, weekends, 24-7 shops, where they're consuming and also hosting web services and APIs, microservices. They have many different names out there, they call them. I tend to have to deal with them all the time. Yes, we always deploying new things, adding new features, making it always better. And the APIs tend to be like the framework of how you communicate now from, uh, you know, it's, it's platform agnostic. So you just basically, you put your HTTP out there and everybody can connect to you or you can get to them. Rainier, I know that working with APIs on IBM I specifically, we've seen how the technology has changed through the years. And what I mean by that is the tooling that we've been given by IBM to work with APIs has only gotten better with every release and every technology refresh. I mean, for example, I know in, in the old days, whatever that even means, we were using the old HTTP get club, but there's been some vast improvements in there. You want to talk about some of that? First of all, let's talk about the old techniques and then how it's gotten better. Basically, with about five, maybe longer than that now, it's been a little while, it had the HTTP get club and get blob came out. And those are SQL functions where IBM was basically using, uh, uh, they put uh, that SQL command on top of Java. So they allow you to uh, go out and consume uh, other web services or APIs that are out there, microservices. Now they have the newer ones where there seems to be more curl based from my understanding, and it's a lot faster. And it's, and it's pretty much doing the same job, just a little different. So you mentioned that it it does work faster, it performs better, but what kind of changes, what have you seen in performance wise in the in the amount of time it takes to consume one of these services using the old and the new? Well, the time is dramatic. Where uh, the older web services, Java's based, basically it, it's Java, if anybody's ran Java on the eye, they know that Java, it's, it's a little consuming. It takes up some resources. You have to build a Java environment and there's some hoops you got to go through leaving Java and moving it to curl, the time it takes is probably, the calls are probably like 
I would say almost 200% faster. That's head over heels faster, the newer commands compared to the old ones. And just to be clear, we're talking about now consuming web services because or APIs, I should say, because obviously yeah. in, in this discussion, it's, it goes both ways. We can both consume and serve. And we'll talk about the different things. But right now with these new functions, we're talking about re, um, we're talking about consuming web services. Correct. Okay. And the newer functions we're talking about, the, the new SQL functions, how difficult, if at all, was it to make the transition to start using these new functions? Was it something that is, if you just roll it right in? Or and it's not an exact command. I know the actual syntax format of the, new commands look a little bit different. They, you know, they have the underscores, but what was the transition like to use the new the newer functions? Uh, at a very high level, they do the same exact job. When you get down a little bit lower, you'll you'll notice certain things like uh, IBM kind of flipped the, the data portion and the header specs or the options. For, so before, when you called uh, one of their APIs before, it was the URL and then it was like the header. If the call requires data, then there would be the data parameter. Now they kind of flip the data and the header or the options as they call it, parameters. So if you're going from the Java one, you have to be cognizant to know that uh, basically that uh, those variables, it's the same three variables, but they kind of flip the order on the last two, which would be the uh, data and the and the header. I know with some of our clients, or maybe all of them, we have one big service program, for example, that does all the consuming that we that we use. And in this service program, we'll use, or we have, we've included in the, in the service program, all the all the functions, both the legacy and now the newer ones as well. What, what was the purpose for that? Why do you have to keep both of them in there in this one big service program that, that handles APIs? I'm glad you asked that question. Also, well, this, this, it, goes, it leads to also the differences between the two, uh, the underpinning of the two. Now, when it, when it came to the Java web services, the certificates are actually built into the Java environment. The newer functions, the certificates are using a, a typical IBM uh, certificate store. So in a lot of times, if something wasn't working and you might need a new certificate or it worked with the old one, but now it's not working with the new one. Sometimes you have to export the, export the certificate from the Java certificate store that's built into Java and then imported into your new certificate store that IBM recommends you make for the new SQL HTTP functions. Another caveat is keep in mind that the old SQL functions were all uh, XML based. So your header and your header spec, your option specs needed to be in XML. The newer ones are is JSON based. So you, you have almost the same options in the header and everything, but now you have to, everything has to be a JSON syntax. So if, if I isolate in my shop, all of the APIs being consumed, the programming as we've, as we've done in the service program, we could very quickly, I think, go in, immediately start using for all of the programs that need APIs being called, they can immediately start using the newer functions right away. Yes, that's what we. That's that's why we did it that way through the service programs, because in the, in the service program we actually have a uh, we have a kind of an options parameter that comes in, and that's a series of flags and how you want the service program to perform. And one of the flags was to use the new or the old service calls. 
So basically from all the programs, nothing really changed, but inside we could designate whether inside, based on the parameter, we could decide whether you're going to use the new one or the old one. Why would anybody ever want to still use the old one if the new one is so much better? Well, like I said, it's still kind of there for legacy because sometimes the, we haven't got to that application yet. And it's also there sometimes proactively because when you, we have a new customer coming on and we can't seem to get it working on the, on the, on the new one, we run the old one just to see if it does work. And if it does work, what's the, what's the, you know, the main difference? Why is it working on the old one and not the new one? It's just another tool. To me, it's just another tool in the shop. Same thing as uh, if we had, if you used Postman or uh, SOAP UI, kind of figure out how you're going to do your web services or your, you're gonna, how you're going to consume them. Yeah, and those tools, you mentioned Postman and SOAP UI, those are very good, I guess, to initially learn about the data, you know, the payload and see what's coming back. And, and that's something I guess you would need to know to do programming with a particular API. Well, I, I tend to use that as a first step because before I even go into the whole uh, making the program, I want to just make sure the I want to make sure the API microservice web service whatever however you call it, I want to make sure it works. So I want to eliminate the whole IBMI from the whole from the whole thing. I go to you know I go to Postman or Soap UI and just make sure the credentials, sometimes you know the information that was provided to me, make sure it works. Because there's nothing worse than you building all the, you know, you're building all these connections. You're doing, you're building a program, and then you find out the token they gave you is bad, or the URL is wrong, or something like that. And you, you know, spending all this time knocking yourself on the head trying to figure out what's going on. You, know, just, you heard it here it, first. So, so Sophie White <laughs> or Postman really are essential tools to get into this world. It also gives you it also gives you a good snapshot because you can look at the raw data, what's being transmitted to from Sophie UI or Postman. You can also see what's being sent and what the raw data coming back is. In the same regards, with the data coming back and getting as much data as you can, I tend to, uh, I would recommend all, even the older functions. I always use the verbose versions because then you can actually get the header back. You get the verbose header so you can actually see that the HTTP header that's sent back and you can see the code or the error codes and you can see things of that nature for what's going on. You know, we get into the world of APIs and then there's all these different discussions, different technologies. For example, when we first started getting into this years and years ago, the um, the big API, the big man on campus, as it were, was SOAP. Yes. And I know we have a couple of customers still using SOAP because that's what their their customers are asking for or whatever. But what are you seeing out there as far as REST versus SOAP? I mean, is there, I mean clearly by now I have to imagine most customers are now using rest yes well the soap soap came out first and that's why you know it was originally there rest came it was a little late to the show but uh, rest is a little more flexible it's not a protocol like soap is so it tends to be more uh, flexible and more customizable or you know most you'll see that if you deal with uh, different marketplaces and everything everybody has their it's you know you're using the same rest you know, REST API, uh, you're doing your gets and puts and everything, but everybody has their own little flavor to it. You know, they sprinkle the, how, how they're going to secure it, how they're going to do the tokens and, and how they want the data to be sent, whether, uh, how's encrypted and all that stuff. So yes, I do see a lot more REST out there than I do, do see SOAP. Another reason I guess would be because a SOAP is also XML based and the REST services can be XML, JSON or whatever you want it to be. It's more flexible. 
but you're finding clearly today also in, in that regard, Jason is clearly the king today. Yes, I haven't I haven't received any new soap soap calls. It's really and, and you know we do we're maintaining some of our clients that do have soap web services. We still maintain them, and in some regards, we're maintaining the soap and also introducing a REST web service or uh, you know API for the customer to consume. So. The customer, you know, has more, uh, you know, because a lot of times, like I said, we're running into more customers asking for JSON, not XML. You touched on this briefly. You talked about um, newer versions of services becoming available, things like that. And that brings up the, the conversation of versioning, API versioning. First, can you explain to everybody what, what that is, versioning, and how does it work in the world of APIs? Okay, uh, versioning is uh, basically when you make an enhancement or change to your, you know, your the, to the API web service program where maybe you're offering more information or you're changing the way the data is going to be sent back to, to provide more information or details to the consumer. And uh, and, and, and and vice versa, when you're consuming it, uh, you're, the person you're connecting to may offer a new version of the API. A lot of times you they do that so... They don't. They don't. They, they can basically gradually migrate everybody to the newer version, and everybody can get used to it. So what they tend to do is they have uh, they have one URL, and uh, sometimes they embed the version in the URL. So you'll see like is it V two or you know V three, and when they come out with a new one, they'll be the V four or V five, and that allows you to develop while you're still in production. And you can actually, you know, and then once you're satisfied, you're getting the right information, you've made the correct modifications to your program, you can migrate over. So it's a great, you know, it, that's basically why it's done that way. It allows every, you know, allows everybody to, you know, migrate at their own path, their own timing to uh, move to new. They usually set deadlines, though. So they usually say, like, oh, in six months, we're going to decrement the version two. You have to go to version four. So they give you six months to get yourself on board. And the same thing when you're, I tend to use the same practice when we're, when we're hosting is if we're going to, we're going to make a change or something like that. We tend to make a new you know, URL or different, uh, you know, branch, you know, extension to the URL. So, you know, the user can get the new experience, but we don't take away the uh, older function for other customers or consumers that are not ready for it. Right, so we'll have two or maybe even more versions of the same yeah. or similar program active at, at one time. Yep. Like I said before, we do have some clients where they we have the legacy SOAP, the service that we're hosting, and then some of the clients are asked for it to be in JSON and stuff, so we introduce the REST version of it as well. And it has a different URL, so you know you can you can go to the you can go to the SOAP one or you can go to the REST one. Right. When we get a payload back from an API, we have to, we have to, we're getting, we have to do something with this payload. We have to parse right. it usually comes to mind. And there are a couple of ways to parse data on IBM I. I know you can do it right from within RPG. Obviously we can use, uh, if it's XML, XML into or data into, but those are not the only two ways. And I know you have a, a more favorable way of doing it. I know you like using an SQL. How would you normally parse a payload using SQL? Well, yeah, there are some built-in functions that IBM provides, like JSON table and XML table, which allow you to. I, I like XML and JSON tables solely because I can I can specifically ask for the data I want and pull just what I need out. Uh, some of the other 
convert uh, options, parsing options you uh, mentioned before, you have to have like, you have to pull all the data in. So it's nice in SQL where I just want to, you know, if I'm looking, you know, if I'm pulling data and I'm just only looking for the updated price, I don't need to get everything. I can just basically pull the uh, the pull the API or whatever, which will bring down all the data. But when I'm when I actually pull the data out using SQL, I just only want the price. So I just pull the price out. Rainier, I know that one issue that we we have to deal with, and I imagine a lot of people have to deal with, are character sets, differences in character sets, CCSIDs or CSIDs, depending who you talk to. But what challenges have you had with CCSID or CSIDs? Why might they become a real issue when you get involved with programming with, with APIs? The number one reason why a CSIDs ends up being an issue is because uh, IBM runs EPSIDIC. And the rest of the world pretty much doesn't. So pretty much any data you're getting from the ex from the outside world, it's not going to be in the same character to set that you're accustomed to on the IBMI, because everything on the I, I is EBCDIC. So you're you're typically dealing with uh, UTF-8, but Jenna, but sometimes you will bump it to ASCII as well, and you need to be cognizant about that because when you're converting data back and doing things like uh, hashing data, making uh, storing data or zipping it or doing some of the things like that you want to make sure the data is in the right format so when the data is sent or compared or whatever that you're comparing apple to apples to apples you know ibm makes that kind of easy because you you're you will you can apply a csid right on the the declaration of a variable you can apply it and say hey i want this this character can be uh you know utf8 this one can be epsidic or actually default epsidic and uh, you can say, oh, this one's ASCII, and you can kind of convert the by moving the data between the variables. IBM will be nice enough to convert it. One, one thing you need to be cognizant of, though, is especially coming from UTF-8 to, to EBCDIC, is not all the characters, because UTF-8 is quite large, not all the characters are represented in, in EBCDIC. You, you'll actually, uh, and that's actually another point that's different between those SQL function calls for that is uh, the Java one tends to kind of, it throws in as its own special character if it doesn't know what, it, what, to, what how to convert it. And the, the newer ones does a, kind of a default IBM thing. So you have to be cognizant that if there is a UTF-8 or something, some data that's coming across that can't convert, you'll see a hex 15 sitting in the middle of your data. You need to know that hex 15 means uh, there was no conversion for that, uh, for that character. So you need to do something with it because a lot of times now, if you try to bring that data into your uh, EBCDIC field with the hex 15, IBM's going to balk at you and say, hey, that's not character data. So you, a lot of times we have to strip it out or do something or, you know, put some kind of change the hex 15 to either a blank or change it to another character. So the person we know later on down the chain that there was some unconvertible data at this point. So it's it's a topic that can't be ignored, is what I'm getting from this conversation. <laughs> no, it can't, it can't be ignored because, like I said before, the nature, uh, you know, the nature of the you know the business is being able to deal with different uh, character sets, and you know, even if you're doing, you have to be also different character sets could also mean different languages as well. You know, when you start getting into foreign languages like in the Far East with Asia, the different cuneiforms and stuff like that have different uh, different CCSIDs as well. As well. If you're going to be dealing with that stuff, CCSID is going to play a big role in all of that. 
and you need to be able to know how to convert back and forth. You need to make sure that if you're zipping something or hashing something or converting something and using those commands that, uh, you know, base 64 encoding, or if you're doing the URL encoding, you need to make sure that you're encoding it using the right CCS idea or right, you know, you want to make sure you're encoding it in ASCII. So when the guy does the, you know, does a hash check on his side and he does the ASCII, you're getting the same values. I've seen a lot of people have issues where they hash it, but they didn't convert the data to ASCII. So they, they have an EPSIDIC, they have an EPSIDIC, they hash it, and then they send the hash over and it doesn't match because you have an EPSIDIC hash matched up with the ASCII hash and they're not the same and you'll run into issues. So it almost sounds to me as if we should have a separate podcast just talking about CCS IDs and how how, how to really address them under different circumstances. Yes, if, if you want a really dry, <laughs> dry conversation, that's that's what's going to be. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because I know a lot of conferences, you know, they may shy away from having a session on this very topic because maybe it is so dry, as you say. But it's almost like how can you ignore it? It's such an important point of this of this whole topic. Well, yeah, I, I see it as a big pitfall, but usually once the user or the programmer or the developer kind of realizes, once you get once you get your foot kind of dipped into it, you kind of, you're annoyed, you kind of know how to start dealing with it. Because once you deal with one character set, dealing with another one or whatever, it's all the same at that point. Right. It's just getting into the practice of understanding what they actually are. Yes. Getting into the practice of understanding it and recognizing what's going on when you get in error because of it. Because a lot of times I've seen, like I said, that issue came up because, uh, like I said, there was a difference between the Java-based SQL HTTP functions where Java was converting it to a character that could proceed later on in the chain. If you're, if you're consuming it using the newer ones and you try to throw it into an EPSIDIC field, you'll get a conversion error. And you'll say you'll get an SQL error telling you, hey, you're trying to put data in this field that I, I can't put. And you'll see, you'll you dig deep enough, you'll see some hex 15s or something like that in there. And sure enough, that's not going to, it's not going to ride and you're going to have to do something about it. All right. So let's keep going forward with, with the conversation. Then if we are beginning using APIs for a new customer or not even a new customer, but we have a new, we have a customer who's starting to use APIs. What other tools do we have at our disposal to monitor the progress and to track errors and to handle error, you know, for error handling, things like that, like logging, for example, what, what tools are available that we can use to, to implement and get these APIs up and running? Uh, when it comes to monitoring and things of that nature, um, if you're consuming, like sort of using the SQL functions, uh, like I said, I, I tend to use the verbose versions of those. So I can get as much information as I can get back of when there is a problem, what's going on, and we do tend to log that stuff, we tend to log it more on the IFS than in, in a database file, even though in some cases we have stored it in the database file, but generally it's storing it out in the IFS because it's just easier that way to take the data because yet again, like I said, we're getting data in UTF-8 and ASCII and all that stuff, and it's just easier to log that stuff because uh, the IFS supports those uh, CCS IDs a lot native, uh, more natively. So it's just taking the data and just dumping it there. Makes it a little easier. When it comes to, comes to hosting and that stuff, IWS does provide, if you turn on the debugging and the logging features, that you'll get the, you can get the remote IP address. You can get more connection information that we would we do log and put it in the database. So you can see who's connecting, how often they're connecting, 
and then from there we can develop more you know whether we need to you know throttle you know you, we mentioned before i think throttling where this might be a new topic that basically you may want to kind of slow down somebody if he's is hitting your machine way too often we've seen throttling when we try to hit for example if we have a tight loop and we're hitting amazon a lot in a very small amount of time they they are famous for throttling so yes. what does that actually mean i, I mean i know you and i but what does that mean when a, a service throttling it just it, it kind of just means that you may be up to no good you're you know you're making too many requests within a given time period and basically they want to slow you down they just want to you know make it more manageable for them and they want to make sure that you're not hogging up all the resources on your request and you're giving everybody else a fair shake getting their stuff through right so you have to handle that in the code somehow you have to be able to handle that first first recognize you're being throttled and then handle it somehow how do we how do we do that in our customers? Our customers, uh, I've kind of developed, uh, you know, kind of a program that kind of keeps looping through the logs, keeping a look at the timestamps, seeing count, you know, in an average minute or given time frame, how many times the request has come in and what's the turnaround time. And sometimes, you know, how long the requests are, depending if they're making big, bulky, bulky requests or they're just making little requests. You know, we balance that out where you don't want too many people making huge requests and you don't want make people making like little like pinpricks either. This is when we are hosting and we're serving. Yeah, serving it up. Right. We're yeah. going, I, guess, I guess we're talking both sides of the equation, consuming, serving. We're going back and forth. But so let's go focus back again, if you can, please, on the consuming side. Because I know we've, okay. we've gotten throttled by, by some of our larger... Like you said, Amazon's famous for it. So you have to basically, when you uh, when you send the message to Amazon, you'll get a message back. Amazon is nice enough to tell you they're throttling you. They give you they'll give you an HTTP code. They'll give you a description saying you're being throttled. So you basically, when you see that and you bring the data and you bring it in, you have to say, oh, they're throttling me. So uh, typically, what we tend to do is we recognize we put in the code for the they recognize we're being throttled and we kind of put a delay on the system and then really try to request again and keep trying until we're kind of successful. Or I think in certain cases, if we're, we tend to, cause I, you know, yet again, Amazon kind of tells you when you're being throttled, you're, you're going to be, you know, you can't make another request for five minutes or well, 30 seconds or whatever it is. So you kind of wait that a lot of time and try it again. If there's a, I think, in most cases, I think if, if we've gone through the whole cycle of uh, trying and we're still getting throttled and then we've, we've done it five times, we tend to send out an email where we where we put a message out on the upper messages, just basically saying that this, hey, this job is has been throttled and it's, you know, it's been, it's happened more than five times in a row that maybe something's going on or we need to look at the process. So it doesn't just sit there and endlessly loop. So this entire discussion, Rainier, or the bulk of it anyway, has talked about us consuming services. But I, we both know, and we, we've said already, that obviously IBM can also serve web services or APIs quite well. And we use IWS, as we said, integrated web services. Yeah. And what are some of the examples that we've done in the field using IWS at our client sites? Who, who would typically consume our web services? Uh, from our standpoint, we've done it mainly for... It's mainly customer base where we're providing uh, our, our customers, customers with information where like it, it might be real time inventory. Uh, we've done some stuff where the customer needed a, a nice way of basically they, they were got tired of storing copies of the uh, of the invoices every night to their web server. 
So we create a web service for them. So the, the, their web page, if a customer goes to it and asks for a reprint of an invoice, that we actually will produce it, encapsulate it, and send it to the web service to the website to present it to the customer in a, in a PDF format. Uh, also internally, we've done some stuff where uh, we have uh, some warehouse automation, which has been using some web services where you have uh, pickers and stuff like that, where they're requesting, uh, you know, an item has been presented, they want to get an order for it. And after that order, they probably might maybe want shipping information, shipping for labeling purposes and things of that nature. And we provided that kind of stuff. So it's been a, it's been a whole different kind of, you know, we've done a lot of different things. It's pretty much, it could be as, you know, we also have provided other information like order statuses and uh, things of that nature through web services. And the good thing, of course, is because it's an API, it can be someone running a PHP or Node yes. mobile app, for example. Who cares? Right. Yeah. It doesn't make a difference who, who's con uh, who's making the request that I, uh, as long as they can speak HTTP for the REST service and they, they can, you know, and they can handle the payload when it comes back. That's pretty much it. You know, the final thing I want to talk to you about before we wrap this up is security, because that's, you know, that's always front of mind in most cases or probably all cases it should be. But if we're consuming web services, I know we bump into security issues with our whoever's providing the services. What are you seeing out there from security and how do you handle some of the security issues that come up? I will say that uh, most uh, consuming wise, I would say like most of the marketplaces and stuff like that, they're using some version of OAuth where basically you have a, you have a token and you, you know, you have a, maybe a private token and stuff like that. And you have to make a, re a token request. And then once you get the, I guess the transaction token or the actionable token, you would basically, and usually it's only, a, you know, it's only basically the life of that token could be anywhere from five minutes to like a half hour. I haven't really seen one longer than a half hour, but basically you would use that as, you know, you're signing as you're doing your transactions, things of that nature. I've also seen hashing. Where you need to hash your uh, your payloads and what's being sent over, and using that is some is a big security. So basically, if anybody tampers with the uh, payload, if it changes in any way, the hash would be different, so they know that uh, they wouldn't accept the payload. Uh, and of course, you have your SSL security that's uh, through HTTP, and uh, you know that's certificate based, and you need to be you know you need to be aware of that as well. Like I said, the the newer, especially with the newer SQL functions, because you got to make sure that the those HTTP uh, SSLs certificates are in a certificate store that the that you need to reference in the options when you're using the uh, SQL func the newer SQL functions to interact with a and consume a web service or API or microservice, whatever you're calling it these days. Yeah, I guess it's kind of one last thing I want to point out is it's it's that many shops, many shops don't have a what what we consider a modern application or you know well written code or you know legacy code you know older code I should say older style code you know more monolithic you know it's not modularized things like that but yet we're still able to pull it off and introduce APIs. It's more difficult, perhaps, to to put it into a monolith than it is in a modularized application. But what advice might you have for somebody if they have a real requirement? One of their best customers, for example, is demanding today that they use APIs. How do you 
prep that customer? How do you prep that code base to start using APIs? Are there any last best practices you can recommend? Well, you know, if you have a lot of monolithic programs out there, the number one thing is you need to really start modulizing and breaking them down. And usually when you're introduced to a new topic like web services or you need to start interacting with the global with the global economy, as you put it before, that that's a, that's a perfect time to start model uh, modularization and start cutting your code up. And even if you have that monolithic program, you can create a web a service program or something like that that handles just this new stuff that you're dealing with. And kind of, ha- I tend, tend to kind of handle it that way where, you know, the monolithic code is out there and usually it's kind of reading from a file or something like that. So I would have a call either before I call the monolithic program or around it or whatever, where I do my stuff, you know, we reach out to the customer, we get the data or the payload, whatever we're getting from them. Then I'll kind of format the data in a way that the monolithic program kind of likes it and can consume it and kind of deal with it, kind of convert it, and then basically let the monolithic program run. So it's kind of like just kind of front-ending it in a sense of in a matter of speaking. So that's what I tend to do in these situations with monolithic programs, kind of front-end it a little bit. So you're still able to use the monolithic program, even though it probably should be broken down because those things are horrible to service or modify or add features to for that matter. So cool. We, we, we really are lucky. We get to work with a lot of different customers and sets of requirements. And I, I know it's something we need to do because that's the demands of IT today is APIs for sure. We, but that's how we started the conversation with this API economy. And it's, it's really is a truth. It's completely true. Well, the, the best part about it I see is you know when you go into the when you go into the customer's client shop and they they always ask you oh we're getting a request for this uh, I don't think this can be done I, I'm not sure and I say yeah it can be done we can do it and then at, at, afterwards after it's done they say oh it wasn't you know it wasn't that didn't seem that difficult and, and it's really not it's just basically getting into the right mind space and just understanding how these things interact and it's it's just like calling another program but the program's not on your machine. That's all it really boils down to. Everybody knows how to call a program. If you're a programmer, that's all you do is call programs. You should know how to do this. So it's just basically understanding the, the nature of calling a program on another server, another site, another wherever wherever it is, wherever it can be, you can call it, you can use it. And that's what makes these uh, these websites, these APIs, microservices. A lot of people have names for them. They're all kind of the same thing. It's just really nothing but glorified re- remote procedure calls. Hmm. That's what it boils down to. And, you know, in the end, as you go down this road more and more with APIs and get into that model of programming, what that also does for you is it also gets you on a great path towards real digital transformation. Because as you start getting involved involved with newer technologies, even like AI, which is, of course, the big thing today, AI, that's going to rely on APIs. All APIs. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much everything that's out there now that's been coming out lately and everything. It's all API driven. Even you could technically start doing it internally on the eye if you really wanted to, but I haven't really seen it, but uh, you know, you could, that could be another way of uh, developing new stuff as well is just start developing everything as an API. And even you can even consume it yourself using the same SQL functions and IWS and uh, other methods as well. They're, they're out there. And then it's like I said, because all they are is remote, Remote procedure calls, remote uh, whatever, however you want to say it. it's just calling another program and getting data back and using it. 
Awesome. Rainier, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for spending some time with me today. This was a great conversation. This is such an interesting and fascinating technology to me. I mean, I love working with these. I love talking about them. They're, they're fun, I think, and really does extend what you can do on your machine. It just opens the entire world. And that's really where you need to look at everybody because that's the world today. And if you're going to have any meaningful applications at all, I think APIs is going to be for sure part of your tool set, a big part of your tool set. Big part of the tool set, correct. Because they were being a part of the global economy, you need to be able to access information wherever it is. And this is your key to being able to access that information, whether it resides on the IBMI, whether it resides on your website, your web server, whether it resides in another database somewhere else. These are the keys that you need to be able to use to access that data and to leverage that data to make everything better. Absolutely. All right, well, Rainier, once again, thank you very, very much. It's always <laughs> it's always great talking to you. I mean, obviously, we, we work together, so yeah. we, we always a pleasure. But it's always a pleasure to talk about you know this this kind of stuff with you. Thank you. All right, everybody, this brings us to the end of our podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I do encourage you once again to visit the Tech Channel website. There's lots of good information out there. Lots of good other podcasts and articles. Really worth your time. And until next time. Bye now, everybody. Take care.